Welcome to Rising Tide, a podcast for career-driven women to find inspiration, find courage, and find their voice. On today's episode, I'm joined by Sharon McKeon, founder and CEO of Upful. And I thought to myself, well, wouldn't it be nice if there was kind of a piece of software that could tell them that mm-hmm. the feedback is biased and discriminatory? That way, they'll be more likely to listen to it, but I'm less likely to be punished for bringing it up. That idea is what sparks the launch of Upfall. Now, something to note, in 2020, just 7.5% of startups were female-founded, making Sharon in a rare company. Not only is she a founder, but she's building a technology that uses behavioral science to act as a virtual coach for managers as they write employee performance feedback to help reduce biased reviews and make career growth more inclusive and equitable. She is an incredibly brilliant mind with a background in electrical engineering. Sharon knew early on she wanted to become an entrepreneur and merely was looking for the right idea at the right time. She shares with us her challenging experiences as a female in a male-dominated industry, some of the tremendous work that she's done to bring products to market, and how she never let somebody else's belief or disbelief in her keep her from ultimately pursuing what she knew she was capable of. Sharon is truly an inspiration, and I can't wait for all of you to get to meet her. Enjoy. Welcome to Rising Tide, Sharon. Hi, Margaret. So good to be with you again. Yes, I know. It's This is so wonderful. And I one of these days we'll get to be together in person again. It's been a yes. couple of years since we did that. Yes. Like what, 2019, right? 2019. And you know, Mm -hmm. for everyone listening, I think this is such a cool story of the power of relationships. And I'm going to use the word networking because that's what it was. We were both at Saster in 2019 and they were doing this really cool thing where you could sign up to have meetings with people based off of things that others wanted to talk about. And you had reached out to me and we did a quick 15 minute networking conversation. And it was very clear right out of the gate a, you were awesome. And B, I was so, so unbelievably excited about the work you were doing at Upfall. So I like, this is just such a cool, yeah, a cool thing that is now coming to have you be on the podcast. But I, I, I always wanted to share that because I think it's just the power of connecting with people on things where you have a shared passion and you exactly, never know yeah. where that could go. So I, I mentioned Upfall really quick and I will kind of We'll, we'll come back to it, but I would maybe love, because I think what you're doing there is so incredibly powerful, but will you tell us a little bit about Upful and what you're creating? Yeah. yeah so Upful is kind of like this plugin. It's a software plugin that coaches people on language in employee performance reviews. And the whole point is that It's supposed to analyze the language as it's being typed in real time and kind of nudge people using behavioral science methods that are proven to work in changing behavior and in training people. It nudges them to be more meaningful 
in what they're saying in the performance feedback and more inclusive in the language that they use. So we look for vague, subjective, extreme, speculative, and what we call potentially biased language. And we coach around it. So we'll remind them of best practices. We might ask questions to provoke deeper thinking. And we're gonna offer like alternative language that they could use or consider to use. Uh, it's very soft, non-accusatory, and uh, we even try to inject a little humor in there. So I hope that it, it works for the companies that use it. Yeah. You know, I, this is just such a incredibly meaningful solution that you're developing. Did you always set out to like be an entrepreneur and, and start your own company? Yeah, I've probably been thinking about it for the last 12 years now. So I knew that I was going to do this. It was just a matter of when and what idea was I willing to take the leap for, you know, yeah. to quit my job and take the leap and do this. So I had been preparing for this for 12 years. Oh my gosh. So 12 years. Yeah. So how did you know, like, what, what was it that you're like, I know I'm going to be an entrepreneur and I don't, to your point, I don't yeah. know what yet. And I don't know what idea it's going to be yet, but I know that's what I want to be. So my dad was um, a small business owner mm -hmm. and it failed in like 2011, but it was still like a 30 year business, which is kind of impressive. But I did see him that he had kind of like no life, like no vacations. Like he worked, you know, six days a week, 12 hours a day because it was his business. Mm -hmm. So I did see like the ugly side of running a small business growing up. But um, what really led me to go back to that, that idea is when I got laid off in 2009 from my very first job out of college. And there were multiple mass layoffs at this company at that time, um, partially due to the economic environment and like everything crashing the, the few months before it all started. And it had nothing to do with my performance whatsoever. I was just part of a mass layoff, mm. but I, I couldn't help but think about, well, like, why me? Why was I singled out and not the person next to me? And I thought about like, was it really related to performance or was there something else that I was missing? And I learned a couple of things. One is that I learned it's not necessarily about your merits or your performance. It's about who knows what you did. Mm. That's the one thing that I learned. And then the other thing I learned was what were kind of like, what was happening in the company that led them to have to be in this horrible situation where they had to lay off a lot of people at the company. And I figured out like strategically what moves they had made that put them into that situation. And I really tried to understand it. And I mean, I can go into the details. This company was a aerospace and defense company. And in order for them to bid on a specific government contract, they had to hire a certain number of people just so that they could bid on it. So A, like before the whole economic downturn, they had hired all these people, including me, and they had started building a facility, assuming that they would win this contract and they wanted to be right next to the customer. So they started spending a lot of money on this brand new facility and on the proposal process. And I was part of that proposal team and they did not win that government contract. So what were they going to do with all the money that they spent on the new facility and all the employees that they hired specifically for this contract? So they had to offload it. And because I was uh, one of the new hires still like fresh out of college, you know, what do they say? Like last in, first out. 
So that's essentially what happened. And what I learned from this was that, you know, it really was not necessarily the economic downturn that put them into this position. It was really a strategic issue. And I didn't want to be a chess piece in their game. I wanted to be the chess player. And that's when I realized I'm not going to stay an engineer and either I'm going to go into something like a strategy role eventually, or I'm going to own my own business and be in charge of my own career. I love that. You said something, I want to come I want to come back to the engineer because uh-huh. I think yeah. this is a really cool thing to touch on. We're going to come back to that in just a sec. One of the things that you learned, you said that it's not just about marriage, that it's mm-hmm. about who knows what you're doing. I'm curious because right. this is a very valuable thing to learn very early on. And I've noticed in particular, uh, this is something that trips women up more than men, where we, yeah. we kind of make a bad assumption that if I work really hard, I do a good job, people are going to notice. Did you make adjustments? Like you took that away as a learning. Did you make adjustments in how you interacted in future jobs so that it wasn't just about, you know, you had the credentials, but that you were communicating so that others were aware mm-hmm. of the work that you were doing? Yes. And also making sure that you get credit for the things that you've done Mm. that other people don't take that credit away from you. And this did happen in other, at other tech companies where there were people specifically men who would try to take credit for my work. And it's a very tough situation to be in because if you try to advocate for yourself and you want to like, make sure that people know that you did this work, you achieved this outcome when you try to make that clear, it comes off as either, you know, like you're not humble, you're bragging, you're being petty. And it's, that's like a really unfortunate situation to have to be in just because you want, you don't want other people to take the credit away from something you did. Yeah. Did you ever have a situation where you were able to successfully navigate when somebody either was trying to take credit or you were able to get out in front of somebody taking credit for your work? I would say that I'm not very good at that. Okay. <laughs> that I, I mean, I, I try to, but you know, the, it was the backlash did affect me. Yeah. Yeah. And the backlash of trying to take, like trying to. Yeah. The backlash of, of trying to take credit for your own work and, or even um, advocating for yourself. There's a strong backlash, especially for women, because yeah. when we do it, it is not seen the same way as when a man does it. Yeah. Will you give us an example? So there was one time where there was like a new employee that kind of joined the company and they were an ex-consultant and they had a direct line of communication with the CEO. Whereas in my role, I did not have that same, you know, connection with the CEO and we would work on something together. And this guy would take everything that I was doing and report it to the CEO almost as if it was his own. And I knew he was doing it. And I could tell my managers what was happening, but they didn't really want to get into any kind of like political difficult situation. They wanted to kind of stay away from that. So they weren't able to help me navigate that. And um, I didn't really go around him, but I did start to like, when we had meetings with the customer about it, I would try to take the position of like, I'm going to explain it to the customer because I did the work. Right. And it did cause a bit of political issues between me and that guy. 
and uh, he wrote an email and CC'd a lot of different people on it, trying to basically claim that I was like keeping him out of the loop, mm-hmm. but really he was the one that was doing it to me. So ultimately he won. I wasn't really good at navigating that situation. I so, I so can relate. I think people who are listening, if you've ever been in that situation, you know exactly almost the helpless feeling of when you go to your leader and you're not getting an advocate or an ally and you're, you know, you're doing the best that you can to navigate a really difficult situation and the cards are kind of stacked against you. And then, you know, it happens all the time, like shitty people win and it's, you know, I appreciate the honesty about like, you're still working on it. Cause that's yeah. very, it's very difficult. I, I personally don't think I ever fully cracked the code. I don't, I don't play games. I don't do politics, Yeah. but I think it's also, you know, I think when we think about you being an entrepreneur, right. It's like, I love that. That's more of like, I'm not going to play the games, but I, I can still be successful and I'm going I can to change I'm, the game. I can I change the to. game. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, again, I think using that as fuel of, you know, recognizing a situation and choosing to do something about it. And in this case, you're, you're building something to do something about yeah. it, which I think is amazing. So also, thank you for sharing to, that. Like, point out the reason why I mentioned this guy is an ex-consultant is because a lot of consultants the reason why they're able to get into that role is because they are excellent at navigating politics and coming off as very confident and people believe everything that they say because of the way that they say it and that's some that's like that's also something that I learned is a skill that I need to get better at if I want to operate in this kind of environment. Yeah. I think we're getting a flavor for why you are successful because even, even really people who do crappy things, we can learn from them. And so in this case, like great, good on you. You identified an area that exposed an opportunity of growth for you. And you recognize, you know, something he was doing that, you know, perhaps you could actually learn from him. Maybe you would have do it in such an icky way, right? but he still had skills that you could also learn. Um, yes. I love I, that's, that's really helpful. Okay. So let's go back to a happier place. You mentioned you were an engineer and I know that you have a bachelor of science from USC in electrical engineering. That's right. Which it's very rare to see even still today to see women in this field. So how did you decide that electrical engineering was going to be what you pursued? Yeah. So I guess I could start with a like very young age. My parents are immigrants. I was the first person in my family to be born in the US. And part of that means that I had kind of this like, hey, my parents gave up a lot so that they could come here so that I could have a better life and have the freedoms that maybe they didn't have in the country that they came from. And there was this just inside of me that I knew I needed to do something that would help me be financially independent. And when I thought about that, and and I also thought about like, what are my skills? And I know this is like crazy. I'm thinking about this in like middle school and high school. I hated reading and writing, (laughs) but I was really good at math and science. On top of that, I was very creative. Like I did a lot of stuff with music. I did a lot of stuff with like crafting, design, jewelry, sewing, even writing music back then. And I really wanted to do something creative, but I knew like I was very 
uh, aware that there's no real guaranteed salary or career path for people who take that creative route. It's a huge risk. And that a lot of your success in those areas are highly dependent on your network and your personality, which at the time I was pretty like externally shy, like not really internally. Like I had a lot of ideas and stuff that I wanted to say, but I just didn't have the guts to say it. Um, And I definitely didn't have the network because my family, like they just started immigrating here and they didn't have like corporate jobs. They were small business owners, so they didn't know anyone. And so I thought like, what's a practical application of this creativity using my strengths in math and science? That's engineering. And in high school, me and a guy from the orchestra (laughs) started the first robotics team at our high school. And through the robotics team, and it was First Robotics, great organization for improving the STEM pipeline starting at a very young age. But uh, First Robotics, we did the competition as a rookie team. We did pretty good, and uh, there was one female mentor on our team, just one. We had a lot of mentors, but just one female, and she was an electrical engineering student at UCLA at the time, and that was my only exposure to anyone who had ever gone to college, because I'm also the first person in my family to go to college. So I didn't know anybody who was in college. I had no exposure to that growing up, and there was one female mentor, double E student. And I thought, well, if she could do it, all right, I I guess I'm doing double E. So that's kind of how it happened. Oh my gosh. That is, there's so many amazing things in what you described from the fact that you're the first in your family to go to college that, you know, the kind of the weight of being, you know, being a child of immigrants. And that's a very real thing of, you know, kind of, living out the dreams that your parents had of coming to the U S and creating a better life for you of like wanting a, you know, kind of balancing things that you enjoyed doing that maybe didn't have a guaranteed opportunity to earn versus, you know, looking right. for things that were a little more practical, um, that right. were more financially stable. And then, you know, how fortunate to, you know, I think so much of like, the importance of women having female role models is like, it helps to see somebody doing something to say like, okay, if she can do it, I can do it too. It instills that belief. Oh my gosh. You know, I, this is a small thing that you said, but I'm really intrigued by it because the person I know is, you know, I think you've kind of made this transition from being that like that brilliant mind with ideas, but not voicing them to now being that brilliant mind with ideas that has a voice. How did you kind of transition from being that, that shy kind of withholding person to, you know, really being willing to put yourself out there? Well, just like part of it is realizing that if you never share it, nothing's Mm. ever going to be done about it. And then also, like I mentioned about that layoff, it's about who knows what you did. So you really have to do share your ideas and even what you're working on and what you've accomplished. So it was kind of like that. And really, I actually wrote, I know this is really weird for me to say right now, but I applied for a top graduate school program, uh, Stanford MBA. I was rejected, but like the essay that I wrote was about finding my voice. So it's really interesting that you just like mentioned that Mm. because that essay was all about how I found my voice and it was, you know, baby steps. So again, starting with that, like with that layoff, 
and what it kind of like pushed me to do was to, again, it was kind of like making that switch from engineering into what I identified as the more creative role where I can be the idea person, which is product management and finding a way to make that transition and the baby steps that I did outside of work that helped me find my voice. So think activities outside of work, like participating in multiple startup weekends or hackathons, or even organizing them for companies so that I could help other people find their voice and other people share their ideas. And part of that was also like um, at Raytheon, one of the companies that I worked for, who like way back in, you know, 2011 and 12 and 13, already had corporate level goals tied to diversity in innovation. And because it's a corporate goal, it trickles down to every single employee, even individual contributors. And so one of the projects that I worked on, again, this is all extracurricular, was to put on an event that helped increase diversity in innovation. And for them, even back then, they understood that diversity was not just about race, ethnicity, and gender. It was also about age, because in aerospace and defense, they have a huge age gap. And so it was about age and it was about um, like neurodiversity. So, you know, even it could even just be like, hey, somebody's really shy or somebody's an engineer and we want them to work with more business development people or supply chain people. And so I was putting on events that helped these people find each other and connect so that they didn't have to like not participate in a, in a competition because they couldn't find a team. So it was about right. connecting people to make the team so that they can participate in these innovative activities. So through like trying to do it for myself in these like small activities and then doing it for other people at companies I was working at. And then also one of the things that I mentioned was that I joined a metal band and I was the singer. So like literally found my voice (laughs) in a couple different ways. Um, But yeah, it was just through all of these extracurricular activities that I slowly and slowly figured out how to, you know, share my thoughts, share my ideas, build teams, advocate for others and grew my own self-confidence through that, that helped me get into a product manager role eventually and be able to speak. Mm. You know, I think it's such a great reminder of, you know, if we want to develop a skill that it take, you know, it takes time and that you can get increasingly better at something, but, you know, not getting overwhelmed by where you want to be, that it's a, it's a process, you know, yeah. and it's about like in, in kind of continuous progress as opposed yeah. to, you know, flipping a switch and you're magically just one day going to go from being shy and reserved to, you know, outspoken and, you know, a thought leader. So I, I love to hear this process that you went through and how cool that that was the essay that you submitted. And you mentioned that you didn't get into Stanford to be very clear. You did get into, you later applied to UCLA and got into the MBA program at UCLA. That's right. Yeah. So I just want to make, I want to call that out for, you know, yeah. that that And those baby steps. I mean, like you heard me say, I started in 2009. It is 2021 right now. Right. So it, it did take a long time. And like the startup weekends that I mentioned the, or the hackathons, I did multiple of them. And yeah. the first time I did it, I was just a fly on the wall. 
I was a participant on somebody else's team, on somebody else's idea. And the second time, maybe it was a smaller team, but it was still somebody else's idea. But the third time, that was my idea. I recruited 11 people to join my team and then we got third place. It was like my pitch, I put it together, third place. And I, I wasn't even a product manager yet. So like baby steps. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh my gosh. I love, well, and I, I love the tenacity. I think there, there's one thing that seems to stand out about you is you're incredibly tenacious. So, okay. So it sounds like you studied electrical engineering, but as you started to get into the working world and really kind of hands-on, it became very clear very quickly that the path you wanted to go was more product management, but that's right. you ended up with a master's in electrical engineering. So yeah. What, what was, that happen? <laughs> yeah. Well, tell us about that. So at USC, you ended up getting your master's in electrical engineering. So yeah. What was the okay. driver for pursuing so, that? While I was an undergrad, I was just exposed to all these incredibly smart, ambitious people at the engineering school in USC that I was never exposed to at home or with family or even in high school. I would just, I didn't have like the right friend group to have the exposure to, I didn't even know what a master's degree was. Okay. <laughs> so once I was at USC and I like learned, okay, this is what it is. This is what doors it can open. Mm. And that a lot of my classmates were just going straight into the master's program. And then I thought to myself, like, am I, do I ever want to go back to school after this? And I really didn't. So I was like, if I don't do it now, I'm never going to do it. <laughs> so I was like, I can't decide. Um, do I get a master's or do I go work and start making money? And I couldn't decide, as I told you before, like I couldn't decide. So I just did both. <laughs> I'm going to do both of them at the same time. No like, big, whatever. Get masters and work full time. No big. I don't recommend it. Cause again, like I did not have a life for those a uh, couple of years, but, uh, but I did it. Oh my gosh. Well, and okay. So, I mean, I think most people might have an understanding, but give us a flavor. If you're getting your master's in electrical engineering, what mm -hmm. sort of time commitment are we talking about on top of at least a 40 hour work week? What are, what are you looking at with a master's? I honestly don't remember how much time it was. And I think for each person, it's different. For me, it takes a lot of time. So yeah, it was like a lot of late nights, but the good thing about engineering degrees is that it's very collaborative. Like everybody wants to help everyone else. It's not competitive. Yeah. So we're all very supportive of each other. Um, and that's one thing that I really like about engineering school. That's really cool. That's really cool. Okay. So now you're, you've got your master's and you're working full time. And yeah, then so that was the, the first year was, you know, let's see, 2008 to 2009. Yeah. Yes. Then, okay. Yeah. So that was like, you got laid off. off. Then I got laid off. So in the middle of my master's degree, I got laid off, but that wasn't actually as bad as uh, you might think, because I mean, a lot of people were getting laid off in 2009 sure. and at least I had uh, something to like hold me over until, you know, like I'm, I'm getting my degree. It's I'm not like sitting around unemployed. And as you probably saw, like in that year where I didn't have a full-time job anymore, I was able to take a risk and do things that I wouldn't have normally done. So yes. like I started looking for startups to kind of get involved in. And because Silicon Beach was kind of just starting in that year, 2009, 
because of the economic downturn, there was a lot of like startup activity and events that you could go to. That's really when the Silicon Beach and the community started to kind of be born here. And so I started going to all these events and I joined like one startup. And then I also took another risk and tried to do something in fashion design. Yes. Uh, real. So this is really cool. Tell us really fast because, okay. So yeah. like, it, like, I don't know if there's anything. I would never do at, this right? out of school. Cause it's such a huge risk, but it was like, Hey, I, I like, I like this. I'm passionate about it. I think I'm good at it. Let me try. Yeah. So tell everyone, what did you do? So I was looking for fashion design or like anything in that, like a job in that area or an internship in that area. Like I was willing to work for free. And I found this uh, project runway finalist who was looking for somebody and I emailed them and they invited me for an interview. I went over to their studio and I was thinking like, okay, they're probably just going to have like some assistant talk to me. And no, it was Jarrell himself. That was the um, Project Runway finalist. And his sister and another intern were there. And he interviewed me directly. And I came in, like I brought some of the items that I had made, like uh, clothing and jewelry. And, you know, I told him like, yeah, I, I did this and I'm self-taught. And he was like, I'm also self-taught. And, and he like brought me on and I got to, you know, work on his designs for Los Angeles Fashion Week. And I got to participate in one of like, you know, getting the models ready for one of the fashion shows that he did. So I did get the experience that I was looking for. (laughs) Yes. You know, it's always so interesting to me that there seems to be this, this trend when like something seemingly negative happens, like getting laid off, that it really allowed for this stage of massive exploration. And that's really where you got to you got to explore the the side of you that was like loved fashion and designing and creating yes. and, and ultimately deciding that wasn't really the career path you wanted to go down. You right. got to get involved in entrepreneurial type activities like Silicon Beach and yeah. realizing like, I really want this and I'm going to keep staying involved here. And yes. then you were also getting your master's. Like what a cool stage of exploration that yes. may or may not have ever happened if you had exactly been like so. if I when I think back to that like getting laid off in 2009 if that didn't happen I could have easily been one of those uh what we call the lifers where, <laughs> like especially in aerospace and defense when you get into that industry like you become a lifer and you stay there for like 50 years and you get your pension and everything like I could have easily been one of those people <laughs> Well, how great! Not that, that there's anything how great for wrong all of us that, that, right? How great for all of us that that isn't the case. Okay, so after you get your master's, you ended up going to work at Raytheon. Yes. Okay, so tell us what did you do at Raytheon? So I joined their what they call the Rotational Engineering Leadership Development Program. Okay. And what it is basically is that you can do three rotations three different jobs at three different locations within the company. And, you know, it's like a, they have locations all over the world. I mean, mostly in the U S but there are locations outside of the U S as well. And they do quarterly trainings. It's kind of like an internal MBA that you get and you graduate from after two years. It's highly visible to all the executives like C-suite executives at the, at the top of the company. And what I really liked about it, was that you couldn't apply to internal jobs to find your rotations. You had to network within the company 
and convince somebody to create the rotation for you. <laughs> and this is like, again, when we talked about like finding your voice, Raytheon also did a lot of internal development and training for, I mean, they do it for all their employees, which is great. And also have to give them a ton of credit that again, you know, like 15 years ago, they were doing stuff with diversity, equity, inclusion before, you know, the tech world started doing it just a few years ago. Raytheon did a lot of tra internal training on that every year for every single employee. But as part of this rotational program, you know, there's a lot of overhead that comes with taking on a rotation because whoever accepts you in the company, they have to pay for your travel, your training, your relocation, everything. And they're only going to keep you for eight months. So you're forced to figure out how to navigate like the managers and the department heads to convince them to bring you on. And it's really brilliant because it taught me the strategy of talking to the people at the top, go to the top and have them convince people beneath them to bring you on. So it helped me get comfortable talking to leaders like business unit presidents and department heads. I mean, you're like at a company with, you know, 60, 70,000 employees. These are pretty big people. You just have to like cold call, email their assistants, executives, and executive assistants and make a relationship with them, get some time on their calendar and pitch yourself. So it really did push me to find my voice and figure out how to advocate for myself. And it was expected though. So it was expected. There was a brand behind this program internally. So they helped facilitate it in some way, but it did help me learn how to pitch myself. Yes. Yourself and your ideas and yes. And, and essentially have to build an ROI for bringing you yes. on because very, you know, short we time did. frame and yeah. How cool of a program. I'm sure some people are sitting here listening being like, oh my God, that sounds so stressful, but what great grooming for that entrepreneurial side of you that well, really the program, the program is meant to groom those people like it, like leadership development program, right? Like it's supposed to groom them to be the future leaders of Raytheon. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that sounds amazing. So, okay. So, so great culture, great leadership development, great skill development, mm -hmm. but you left. What made you yes. leave? I got bored. <laughs> and like I said, I already knew that I wanted to do product management. Like yeah. before even starting this job, I knew that I wanted it, but I also knew that nobody was going to, like, I just got my master's nobody's going to hire me from like electrical engineering masters into product management role. And I think even like back then, again, this is like 11, 12 years ago, product management still wasn't, it wasn't as defined as it is today. And every company kind of did it differently. And the background to get into it was very different. Like there wasn't a path that mm. got you into that role. It was just people that kind of fell into it back then. Maybe they were business owners. Maybe they were like somebody, you know, a different role at the company. And then they like created this role and they took on that responsibility. It wasn't what it is today where you have um, people going to get their MBAs just to transition to product management. So back then it wasn't exactly that. There wasn't that clear path to it. You didn't need an MBA for it. You didn't even have like Amazon and Google be like have you know hiring all these product managers back then so it's very different and um I knew that I wanted to do that but nobody was going to like 
there wasn't a path to it. And I, nobody was going to hire me for that. I tried, trust me, I tried. So right. I, well, let's, I, let's stay yeah. there for a second. Cause yeah. that's really interesting because it, you know, again, this is at a time where the role was very undefined. There wasn't mm-hmm. a lot of clarity around it. How you got into it seemed kind of to be like how you were networked, mm-hmm. you know, very similar to like the fashion industry. Yeah. And people were straight up telling you, no, <laughs> like you yeah. were going for these things and not getting it. How did you not give up? Like, how did you persevere through basically like having that lack of clarity and also having people say like, no, I'm not willing to, like, I don't see that for you. Right. Well, so I kind of understood where they were coming from because uh-huh. I only had engineering experience at the time and not even that much. Right. And I didn't have enough like extracurricular that was directly related to product management at the time to be able to go on and take that role. And I was not an internal candidate as it seemed most product managers were. So like I saw that and I knew that I needed to take steps to get there. And that's exactly what I did. Like, so when you asked, when I told, when I discussed before, like, why did I do startup weekends and hackathons and all of these things? It's because I needed to show that I could think like a product manager, that I could do the things that they do, that I could present, that I could come up with a vision and communicate it and come up with like a, a business case for it or a, a market, you know, do the things that product managers do. So I knew that I had to do that on the side. And for the first two years at Raytheon, like I was fully focused on, you know, I want to graduate from their program. And then after that, I got bored, like for the third year, I got bored and I started looking for the next step. And again, like straight out of Raytheon, it still wasn't working where I I couldn't get into product management. And so I had to go back to like baby steps, come came up with a plan, like join a company that has a product manager role, find the role inside that can use my transferable skills Mm -hmm. and try to get into it from inside. Right. Right. Okay. So what, okay. So what was the the step in that direction then? Where did you go after Raytheon? So I went to Beats by Dre, the, head cool. for the headphones and <laughs> the transferable skill was that, you know, they had just ended their relationship with Monster Cable for all of their engineering and product development, and they were building their own internal team. So they needed engineers to help design and manufacture. And what they cared about was building something that was of higher quality and that was reliable and that would last. And the great thing about aerospace and defense that a lot of people don't seem to think about is that for aerospace and defense products, you have thousands of people working on one very complex product that typically has to last, let's say like if it's going up into into space, it has to last 25 years without you even touching it. And some other products, people's lives depend on it. So the reliability has to be like, 99.999% there. It has to work perfect. The requirements and the test specifications have to be very thorough. So there's a lot of, you know, quality control in it, but also a a lot of engineering that goes into it to make it a better quality product to last that long. And so that was the transferable scale to beats. And so I was able to get a lead engineering role for, you know, one of their products at Beats and, you know, one of the first like early engineers on their team, which was very exciting because at Beats, you know, the teams were very small. You would have one person basically represent each type of engineering 
function on the team, one person. Wow. Whereas like at Raytheon, you have thousands of people. Right. That's amazing. It's amazing that you already understood the value of transferable skills and that, yeah. <laughs> you know, you could leverage experience that you had, you could connect how, what you were doing at aerospace actually was very much what was a need for what they were doing at beats by Dre and building yeah. out this engineering team. But um, also, but also networking because I wouldn't have, I'd, honestly did not know about Beats by Dre. I was not like in that community. I didn't know what they were doing and how big they were at the time, like brand wise, mm -hmm. but, you know, staying connected with colleagues and friends from college and hearing about like where they're moving. Like I was just chatting with a, with a class, an old classmate sister internally on Raytheon. Cause she got into the, the same leadership development program I was in chatting with her. And she told me her brother had just moved to Beats. And so I connected with him and he referred me. So again, it's about networking, getting internal referrals that helps open the door and helps you get past some other candidates. Right. Right. But I, yeah. you know, I, I think we're seeing this, this theme continuing to come up of like the willingness to put yourself out there. Mm -hmm. And that's huge. And you know, in networking, it's like, yeah, if you meet people, but you don't tell them what you're looking for, or, you know, communicate what you're passionate about, then it's may or may not be that valuable, but you continuously, it sounds like have put yourself out there. That's how yes. we got connected. Yes. And, you know, and so like, it's, it's really neat to see how that is connected to the different steps that you've been taking in your career. So, okay. So how long were you at Beats? One year. Okay. So not, not too terribly, not, not too terribly long, long, but there's a lot that happened in that one year. Oh my gosh. And I believe while you were there, it was acquired by Apple. Is that right? That's also right. Yes. Got it. Yeah. So did I, I, would I mean, acquisitions completely can really throw a monkey wrench yeah. in things. So I mean, was this was like a year of extreme high growth for that company. They grew yeah. a lot in terms of number of employees. They released a lot of their the, the products, like the version two, version three of some of their products. And again, because it's a, it's still a startup. I mean, a well-funded startup. Their timelines are very different. Yeah. Like, you know, Raytheon, their products you know, you could be working on one of their products for like 10, 15 years, and maybe you never even see your product come out. Um, nobody even knows about it. Nobody sees it because it's not a consumer product. But at Beats, you might be working on a product for like eight months, and you then come out with like millions of units out to the world. And that eight months or year is very, very stressful, challenging, fast paced, I was flying back and forth from China. It was very tough. Yeah. But it was worth it. And I learned a lot. Let me ask you something. Cause you know, you mentioned that this is very much, it was very much in startup mode. I mean, they mm -hmm. had just, they had just gotten to a point where they were bringing engineering in house when you got there Yeah, and high growth. They um, were specifically looking for people to hit the round run running. There right. was no training it was like, you're joining and we're going to send you out to China. Like you are the person you are in charge of this. Um, right. No one's going to mentor you. No one's going to train you. You just go and perform. That sounds like a startup. So yeah. let me ask you this. Did, 
did that deter you? I mean, yeah. obviously it didn't. We know that hindsight <laughs> yeah. at the time, like, did that, did that at all bring into question of like, do I still want to be an entrepreneur? Because I mean, it's a, it's a flavor of a type of startup. Right. No, it didn't deter me at all. It, like I didn't even, like it was nothing. <laughs> like I'm ready. You're like, I'm willing to work. Well, and I, I, I think was, you, you have to understand, like I was bored for the last year at that, at my last job, like really bored to the point where like, sometimes I would go to the bathroom and cry because I was oh. so bored. Yeah. Yeah. So this was a welcome change of pace. And, and like, I think I mentioned to you before, like in that last year, I also joined, that's when I joined the metal band because I was so bored. So I had to have these like extracurricular (laughs) activities. And so beats was like even more perfect because it was joining like two passions. It was music and engineering. And I mean, I even like brought it up when I, like part of the interview for beats was that you had to kind of pitch yourself. So I made a deck about like what's what you know the transferable skills and then also like what projects that I worked on that were relevant and also bringing in the music component I I don't know if it helps but it definitely made a few people in that room like connect with me on a personal level because there were other engineering leaders who were in their own metal or punk bands How amazing. Yeah. How, well, and I think it shows the value of like, we're, we're more alike than we're not. And in this case, like you guys were actually very much more alike in the fact that they were also in metal bands, so yeah. here. but allowing, you know, I think you bring up a really great point, which is when you, uh, I was just reading today, I was looking up some things from Brene Brown and vulnerability, oh, yeah. but it's the, you know, that power of allowing others to connect to you when you put yourself out there and when you're willing to be vulnerable, you open the door to opportunity, mm-hmm. which is exactly, you know, you sharing that about yourself, it opened the door. Yeah. So, okay. So there for a year, fast and furious acquisition by Apple. And it's like, okay, it's time, it's time to this has been great, but now I, I, I want, I like, let's, let's keep it moving. Yeah. I want to be a product manager. And, um, before the Apple acquisition, I did start laying the groundwork with the product team at Beats. Yeah. I started talking to them. I started getting to know them and I was very clear about my intentions. And it, actually, even before when I applied for the job, the engineering job at Beats, I like, it was very clear to my um, hiring manager that, this was my intention that I eventually wanted to go into product management. I made that very clear. And so I had started laying the groundwork and when Apple acquired us, you know, the teams were kind of being aligned to like, what would the role be at Apple? Hmm. And for our team, the, the one that I was on, even though we were like the technical lead or like the engineering lead, the title system engineer really came from aerospace and defense, and it really had no meaning in consumer electronics. So the entire company didn't understand what, like, what is system engineer? What does that mean? And really like it's an engineering product manager, engineering program manager, whatever you want to call it, but you're the engineering or the technical lead. But there was a role at Beats that was already called like project manager, and they were in charge of the engineers. Um, And they didn't have any technical background, by the way. So they were being lined up to be the engineering program manager at Apple. And my team, the system engineering team, was being uh, positioned as quality assurance. Mm -hmm. And I did not join this company to go into quality assurance. Like, that was not part of my path. And uh, 
also because you know as a as a merge is happening and acquisition is happening all of our uh, projects at beats were kind of frozen and all movement internally and hiring was frozen and i didn't know when that was going to end and i don't like waiting around <laughs> you seem like you like to just chill out <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's that that's I think that's one of the hardest parts about an acquisition is there's a lot of uncertainty it always takes longer than you think and things tend to get frozen in place yeah Yeah. so so it sounds like you left yes okay yeah and then so then you went to telesign which believe we're starting to get closer now to like a true product manager you were the technical program manager yeah, and when we were like preparing for this we were, for this call, like uh, we talked about the importance of titles. So mm-hmm. as I mentioned, like system engineering had no meaning in consumer electronics. So the way that the company saw us was very different, and that changed how we were treated. Yeah, um, and how we got positioned for the next role. And so this this role at Telesign was called technical program manager, which you know to the outside world it might seem like it's it's one role but really we were doing product management we were the product owner but we also managed the engineers directly we had the you know like the vision for what the product would be and all this user stories that would go into jira we created so really it was technical product management but we didn't have the title yet uh they later did change the title after i left <laughs> but well yeah i mean like i'm just I just wanted to share the importance of the meaning of titles and how that affects how you're perceived internally and externally. I cannot thank you enough for making that point because I, again, I've noticed it more with women than men and I'll call myself out where you don't think title matters, right? It does. does. And I think this is such a great example in your experience of um, the, uh, where the work that you were doing versus your title, what mm-hmm. was looked at was your title. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And in both this role and at Beats, it affected your trajectory because yes. of it. it wasn't about, and, and that's tragic. It really is. It doesn't always make sense, but I think it's such a great thing that again, if you're listening to this, when you're going for a new job, when you're going for an internal promotion, like pay attention to title, title is yeah. very important and, um, and it's, worth, it's worth fighting for. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Even, even just this, even just the senior makes a difference, by the way. Yes. Yes. So, it totally does. Yeah. It totally does. Okay. So was that a reason for leaving? Is that like the, the door uh, like wasn't partially, really partially, okay. but, but not, not fully. Um, yeah. So what I did at tel- Telesign, um, so I was a product owner. I was doing product management, but yes, I didn't have the title. I didn't get the credit for it. And this is also where I experienced, you know, a lot of people talk about having imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think I told you, like, I did not have imposter syndrome at that <laughs> point in time. And the reason is, is because I was working with a lot of people. And yes, they are men uh, that I was working with who I could very, they were way more senior to me at this company. And uh, they didn't know anything about our products. Just like things that we were doing, they were not on top of. They, I don't know how to say this in a, in a more PC way, but I was exposed to a lot of people who, I don't know how they got their job. Yeah. Uh, it seemed to just be like, 
they were really good at talking in a very confident way and excuse my language, but like bullshitting to get the job and then bullshitting to show that they're making um, progress within the job. And that was also part of what I mentioned before, taking credit for other people's work. Mm-hmm. And this completely like obliterated any sense of imposter syndrome that I may or may not have had at that time. When I saw, oh my God, these people don't know anything. And they're like senior director of product management. Wow. I can do that. <laughs> like no question in my mind. I can do that. <laughs> it's so interesting. Your reaction. Uh, I can speak to my reaction, which was like rage. <laughs> I mean, that too. <laughs> a little, a little bit of that too. <laughs> Yours was a little bit more productively channeled, but, and, and I don't think that again, I, sadly, I don't think this is uncommon, but it's also why, you know, I, it's, it's interesting because we're starting to see like some of the early signs of what Upful has become and yeah. kind of some of the influences that have played into what you're building. So speaking of- Well, I, I also wanted to mention another thing that I yeah. think will help women when they're thinking about like making career shifts. Yeah. Um, when I switched from Beats to Telesign, I took a pay cut. I took a pay cut and I thought it was worth it. You know, it was like hard to kind of do that, but I convinced myself that it was a good idea because while I was at Beats, I was probably working on average 80 to 100 hours a week. Um, And, you know, you're not getting paid for that because your salary. So I kind of convinced myself that it was okay to take the pay cut because I wouldn't be working as many hours. Sure. You did the math. So yeah, like in that sense, it was worth it. But in, in the other sense, like, yeah, it was opening up the door to get me closer to product Mm. management. And that was important to me. So you're getting to something really interesting, which is this concept of knowing what matters to you and kind of that fine striking the balance of like what's what's critical kind of non-negotiable what can you be flexible on and what really doesn't matter and it sounds like for this transition working less than 80 to 100 hours a week in china uh, where you can't do anything else like you can't talk to anyone you can't like go work out you can't like there's no fun you know right yeah so trying to restore some sense of balance was worth it. Financially, you could come down, didn't have to be like, you had kind of a range, I would imagine that you were willing to work within, but no, you know, so you knew that, but you also knew like you, you didn't want that crazy workload. And then to your point, you knew where you wanted to go and that there was opportunity to set you up to either acquire skills or be on Mm -hmm. a path to get into product management. So I think that's exactly so important so baby steps and some like you got to really think about like are you willing to take that pay cut and, and for me yes right well yeah because the, the there were other things that were more important that you were getting and I think that's such a great thing to think about of when you go into a job is like eyes wide open you know you're walking into mm-hmm. and you're intentionally choosing things and you can't know everything but yeah. with the information that you have you know even if something isn't as great as maybe what you had before, is it something you're willing to sacrifice um, because right. you get other things that are more important? So I love that idea of kind of prioritizing as you're thinking about that transition. Yeah. Okay. So we're getting tight on time and I want to kind of, I want to get to, I think a lot of what was a driving force behind it was time to like, you were ready to 
start your business, but will you kind of tell us the leading events, the catalyst events that really kind of brought things into clarity for you of deciding it's time to, to build my own? Yeah. So I'll briefly say that like after Telesign, I did, I went on to another company and I did actually get senior product manager title. Um, So somebody did like, you keep trying and somebody will see the value in your skills. And uh, so I was like officially now a product manager for a couple of years and, you know, a ton of accomplishments under my belt at both of those companies, but it still ended up where I was in a position where I felt that the projects that I was working on weren't as visible or as strategic. And that didn't make sense given all of the things that I had done for the company that were were visible to the executives in the C-suite. Like everybody knew what I had done for the company, which is rare. And a lot of this was even like within the first six months of joining the company. And this is a trend that I've created for myself, by the way, like a telesign within the first six months, I had accomplished a lot. And they even like, you know, gave me a a huge raise. And the same thing happened at this uh, next company. And it didn't make sense to me, like, why I wasn't given these more strategic opportunities and that I was still doing a lot of, like, manual analytics. And, you know, I had a good relationship with my manager, so I felt like I could talk to him about it. So I did talk to him, and I also tried to educate him on gender bias because I had been reading books about this topic, as you can imagine, throughout these multiple tech companies. There was... Uh, some amount of gender bias and discrimination that I was experiencing. And to be completely honest, before going into these tech startups, like when I was at Raytheon, I didn't even know that gender discrimination was still happening. (laughs) Yeah, I, I had no idea. And I didn't experience it at that company. And it could be for multiple reasons, you know, like they're a more mature company, they're a publicly traded company, They have a lot of HR expertise, a lot of checks and balances. And I mentioned that they did a lot of training and that training was very meaningful. And I began to realize how meaningful it really was because when I switched, none of these tech companies did any training related to diversity, equity, and inclusion um, or bias. And they didn't have a lot of HR um, maturity, like HR practices. So I was at this company, um, I spoke to my manager very openly because I felt comfortable, I trusted him and he like believed in me, he advocated for me before. We talked about gender bias and then I tried to like teach him some of the examples and why I felt like it was happening in my role. And what I saw for my role, like my manager knew that one of my goals was to, to be an entrepreneur or like a leader in product management. So he knew that this was what I wanted. and. Um, I wasn't seeing a path to that. I wasn't getting the right experiences and the right exposure, working on the right projects to do that. So at the same time, I applied for the MBA program. Like this is why I applied for the MBA program is because again, I felt stalled and I thought I needed to do something to accelerate my growth. And I also looked at, you know, if I do want to go into strategy, a lot of them have MBAs or they're ex-consultants. So I need to consider that path. So I applied for the MBA, I got my recommendations from my manager, and then, um, uh, and then I had this discussion about gender bias and discrimination. 
And, you know, I thought part of it was like, because there was maybe preconceptions about me being an engineer, like having that engineering past. A lot of the time when they, you know, look at engineers, they want to put them on more of the technical based projects or the analytics um, heavy projects, because we have this, you know, we're good at statistics and, and whatnot, but we don't get to work on the more strategic and visible projects. So that's also why I applied for the MBA, because I thought like it would help me shed the engineering pass, like officially, even though I had been doing product management for years at that point, still wasn't enough. So anyways, I had this conversation with my manager and instead of us taking steps to resolve or like improve the situation for me to get me on a path where I was doing the types of tasks that would help my growth, I found myself being punished. My resources were taken away from me. I was put on a dead end project that was more analytics heavy and more quality assurance heavy. So like completely in the direction away from where I wanted to go. It was just like a backward step. And I knew that it was probably because of the conversation that we had about gender bias. And so once these kind of steps were taken to put me in this dead end position, I brought HR into the conversation. And we had multiple conversations with me, HR, my manager, even the chief product officer. And just the situation did not get better from there. It got worse. And one thing that came up was, you know, I, I got a piece of feedback that was incredibly, incredibly biased, uh, gender bias. And I did research on it and I found a study that kind of just like perfectly described the feedback that I got, the, the, the biased feedback that I got. And I showed my manager in HR this study. And if I can be specific, the study was about when colleagues ask a man or a woman to stay late to help them prepare for a meeting. And what they found in the study was that when rated, when both the man and the woman said, yes, I'll stay late to help, the man was, I believe, rated 14% higher than the woman. And when they both said, no, I'm sorry, I can't stay late to help you, the woman was rated 12% lower than the man. And what they found was that they expected to, the woman to always be there to help. They don't expect the man to do that. So when the woman says no, she's breaking an expectation, a gender expectation. And yeah. so she's punished as being like, oh, she's so you know selfish. Mm -hmm. When the man said no, they assumed that he was busy doing more important things. And I, I was in this exact situation. That was the exact piece of feedback that I got from my colleagues and my manager was using it against me. And it was really not the case. And I shared that study with them and they just kind of like denied it. And I thought to myself, well, wouldn't it be nice if there was kind of a piece of software that could tell them that mm -hmm. the feedback is biased and discriminatory? That way, they'll be more likely to listen to it, but I'm less likely to be punished for bringing it up because I was, by the way, punished for bringing it up. Yeah. I, I lost that job. <laughs> yeah. I am so grateful that you're sharing this and social expectations has been something that I, I've more so become aware of in the last year in the work that I'm doing with Rising Tide and 
I think understanding both what is kind of imprinted on women from, I mean, it's imprinted on us. It's not really something we choose of how we behave in a lot of ways. And then, you know, this is something that affects women and really any marginalized group, which is if you go outside the box of what's acceptable or what society deems acceptable for somebody like you, Mm -hmm. then there's negative ramifications. And so again, I think what is so special about the work that you're doing is you're choosing to, again, recognize the situation and now you're changing the game. And you're building something that is seeking to solve for whether it's intentional or unintentional biases that happen in the workplace that can really negatively impact minority groups. And so, you know, again, another incredible example of a very painful experience and one that was not unique. I mean, it's not like Mm -hmm. there's been kind of inklings of this throughout and we didn't really even get into all the things that I'm sure kind of played out as a female in a very male dominated career. Yes. Um, But that you're turning that into something really meaningful and really impactful. And that's going to change the workplace in a really positive way and trying to create a better tomorrow for those coming behind you so that they don't have to face some of the same adversity that you've, you've had in your path. Right. Yeah. That's so powerful. And I just, you know, and I, I think like definitely for anyone um, listening, like check out up full and look at what she's doing. And I think it's, it's such a great solution at the right time. That's really going to help a lot of companies that are striving to, to do the right thing, but are struggling with how to support, like how to ensure that their, their leaders are equipped to, to have the conversations because it's a lot of retraining and uh, forming new habits. It's training in the moment. It's private. And you know what I, the story that I shared with you, it was really just the seed for something that's even bigger like yeah. this seed that resulted in me, like talking to over 2000 HR DEI professionals about this, you know, it expanded what we're doing to not just be about bias. It's really just about how do we make performance reviews more meaningful to yeah. help with talent development, but also to train managers. How do you give constructive feedback? Yes. Yes. Yeah which is so hard to do. And so I think it's really great as a way to enable that and enable Mm -hmm. it at scale is um, I get so excited thinking about the impact of what it's going to do. Since we're kind of closing in on time, let's do this. We'll kind of wrap with my favorite question that I like to ask, which is either, you know, something that you've learned that through your career up to this point that you would, would go back and tell your younger self, like something that you've learned or really great advice that was given to you that has really helped you and served you well in your career. You can pick either one, but what would be that thing that you want everyone listening to, to know? All right. So I think this would be something that I've kind of, that I did myself and then I'm glad that I did that I think I want to share with other people so it's really just thinking like long term about what you want out of your career and what are you know what kind of work environment you want what kind of life balance you want and working like how do you see yourself and then work backwards so you could figure out what are those baby like that's a theme here is baby steps and baby steps really do work and to think about that early on so you could set yourself up 
for what you want in the future. And like for me to, we, I know we didn't have time to touch on this. I'll leave it, I'll leave a little bit there, but you know, I told you that my journey to entrepreneurship, I knew that I wanted to do this like 12 years ago. I just didn't know exactly what, but I made a lot of sacrifices and I took a lot of baby steps in those 12 years so that I can take that risk today and, you know, be able to not have a paying job for a couple of years. It took a lot of sacrifices, but my twenties, I prepared for this. I saved up for this and yes, it was a huge sacrifice, but it's paying off today. So thinking long-term and taking those baby steps can actually work. Yeah. I, gosh, I love that so much. And it's such a good reminder again of like to dream really big, like dream really big and, and not tamper it down because you're not sure how you're going to do it. I'm sure mm-hmm. when you said I was to be an entrepreneur 12 years ago, you didn't even know what it would be, but you knew yeah. that that's what you wanted. And so I, that's such a great piece of advice of, you know, the baby steps are just focus on the next, the next best step. And then the next best step and, and kind of having an idea what you want, but being fluid and how you get to it. And so I just think that's such a great thing. And such a, you know, for anyone that's worried about like, will I get there? It's like, trust the process. Mm-hmm. If you know kind of the destination, then trust me, you know, I still wish I could, I still wish I could have gone like straight from like out of college to product <laughs> management. Like I wish. And the thing is like, I knew that I could do it. And it's not like anyone trained me to become that. Yeah. It is still just like, it was already in me. Right. So there's a lot of, I mean, a lot of people aren't able to, you know, people, people underestimate other people all the time. And yes, it could be because of gender, race, and ethnicity, and even like your ability, your um, disability, you know, you can't, you can be underestimated and that sucks. And so, yeah, you, you have to prove it in some other way. Yeah. Yeah. You oh can still God. get there. Yes. Yes. I love it. You, you may have to get more creative, which is, you know, Sharon, in a lot of ways you're reminding me of, um, I read Stacey Abrams leading from the outside. And one of the things that I love about her is that the book is all about her creatively solving for situations. And again, recognizing as a black woman in the United States, she was facing certain obstacles and she just, she outsmarted them. Essentially, she leveraged her strengths, her talents to come up with more creative solutions to still achieve what she set out to do. And I, again, I see that so much in what you're doing. And I think that that's I love to see women doing that of like recognizing, recognizing the situation that you're in and then coming, like getting really creative to still achieve the dreams that you have set out for yourself. So I, I'm so grateful for this time. Thank you so much for sharing your experience and your stories and, and really kind of the big, the really big catalyst of launching you into this amazing entrepreneurial endeavor with Upfall. I just am so as much as I'm sorry that that happened, I'm very grateful it did because it's now causing you to create something that's really meaningful for the rest of us. So thank you, Margaret. <laughs> yes. Thank you for being on. It was such a joy to reconnect with Sharon for this conversation. I was really struck by how she didn't just make changes in her life 
to help herself. She, every single time she saw something that she felt could be better, she brought others along on the journey with her, whether it was the hackathons and helping people find teams or, you know, building Upful that now is going to help others get non-biased performance reviews. I just am so inspired and I love her confidence. And I think a lot of us can learn so much from her in that way. So if you love this episode, please be sure to share it. You know, I really encourage you, if you like it in a hidden nerve, think of one person that you know would also like it and send them the link. If you get a chance, drop us a quick review. And last thing, we officially launched the Rising Tide website. This is risingtide.com. Go check it out. We'll be posting articles there. I'm sharing more information about the Rising Tide Retreat. So make sure if you're interested in getting updates, go on there, subscribe, but definitely check it out. Uh, Excited for this next step. Hope you all are having a great week, whichever week this is that you're listening to it. And so grateful to have you as part of this community. Until next time.